Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of one of our 2020 Elul study classes. I am a professor at the Jewish Theological Seminary on the Upper West Side, which is also where I live. Um, And I teach Talmud uh, primarily to the first year rabbinical students. But something I'm actually going to tell you about myself um, at the outset in order to get into um, the learning we're going to do, because that's much more interesting than anything about me, is um, that one of the traits in myself, oh, I see other people are on the East Coast, so very nice. Um, One of the traits in myself that I struggle with um, is that I am an extremely judgmental person. And I tell you this not because I'm going to be judgmental of any of you, who I'm sure are like the most wonderful people that I've ever known, but... Um, I'm telling you this because this is actually part of the way this, this year came to be. Because every year around this time, um, we're now three days from Elul, um, I start thinking about like what part of my life do I want to work on, right? I've never been much of a New Year's resolution sort of person, but, you know, it comes to, to Elul and to Tishrei, and I have this feeling of like, how do I want to make, make myself better in this coming year? What, what are my um, intentions going to be as I enter this moment? And um, I find myself almost every year saying, I want to be less judgmental. And almost every year, um, I'd like to think I get a little bit better, but I certainly have not gotten to the point where I I need to um, put away that particular desire that I have. So um, as I was thinking about this, um, I found myself thinking about the book of Jonah, which we're going to spend a good amount of time thinking about today. Um, So for those of you who are not familiar, the book of Jonah is... Uh, one of the books of the prophets, and we actually read the entire book traditionally at Mincha, at the afternoon service on Yom Kippur. And it's a very strange story, because on one hand, it's absolutely a story of repentance. In fact, it's the only story in the entire Bible where um, people are warned that if they don't repent, then bad things will happen to you, and they actually repent. So that part of it makes sense for Yom Kippur. But the people who repent, who are the people of Nineveh, are not Jews, So it sets this very interesting standard wherein the story we have of repentance is a story of non-Jews repenting. And certainly there's value in all people repenting, no matter their Jewish status. Um, But something I found myself thinking about is that maybe in the reading of the book of Jonah, which comes very close to the end of Yom Kippur, we not only need to think about um, Jonah himself as um, the messenger to the people of Nineveh to to lead them to this repentance. But maybe the other thing we need to be thinking about actually is the character of Jonah. And so I've become in the last few years somewhat obsessed with the character of Jonah. And the reason why is because now I'm going to sound very judgmental. You're going to hear what I was mourning about. Jonah is terrible. Um, He, as we're going to see texts, so you'll hopefully, you don't have to just take my word for it. Um, He tries to run away from God He um, gets angry when his um, prophecy is successful, meaning when he goes to tell the people to repent and they repent, instead of feeling really good about that, he gets really mad. Um, He at no point shows like um, any degree of joy in the fact that he is able to save this entire city, which you would think would make him feel good. Because what becomes clear about Jonah is that he really is only able to see the world in the context of his own experience. And I think that's a really normal thing. Um, I think that's a totally normal human instinct. But it gets to the point where he can't even push beyond, well, this thing that's difficult for me, because he basically is worried he'll look foolish. Again, we'll see this in the text. But um, 
this, this is difficult for me, but good for the people of Nineveh, he can never get to that point. And so something that I've been thinking about is maybe Jonah is in certain ways a test, and he's a test of um, to what degree can I say I um, understand the place where Jonah is coming from rather than me looking at him and judging him for how he is. And that part of the power of reading this story so close to the end of Yom Kippur is it has become almost a litmus test for me. Uh, Do I still see Jonah as terrible or am I able to find some sympathy or empathy for the frustrations that he's feeling? Um, And what does that say about the spiritual work I've done on myself? So that's by way of introduction. And what we're going to look at today are a series of texts, um, some biblical, some rabbinic, some contemporary, that deal with this question of... Um, what does it mean for us to acknowledge flaws in ourselves? And how does that relate to the way that we see flaws in others? Because I think often we are most judgmental of others in things that we don't want to admit that we condone in ourselves, but that are definitely in there. So that's what we're going to do for the next 52 minutes. Um, So um, hopefully people have access to the sources, but what I'm going to do is when we're reading the source um, directly, Um, I'll put it up on the screen, and then I'll take it down to talk about it. Um, People are already using the chat box, which is really, really great, because I I don't want this to just be me talking. Um, I'd love to hear from all of you as well. Um, And there'll be moments where I ask for people to speak up in addition to to using the chat box. Um, Okay, so here we go. Okay, so the first text, um, which has become, um, as I said, I teach rabbinical students, And this has become, um, among my JTS rabbinical students, probably the most popular book in any given uh, Yamim Noraim high holiday season. Um, And it's a book by Rabbi Alan Liu, who passed away um, at this point a number of years ago, but he was a a rabbi in San Francisco. Um, And he was very into the um, spirituality, um, Jewish Buddhist movement. Um, he He wrote other books as well. But this one book of his, which as far as I can tell, did not get much attention while he was alive. For whatever reason, I would say like approximately eight years ago, burst onto the scene and now has become, as I said, at least among my conservative rabbinical students and conservative rabbis, one of the most important books in terms of thinking about what it means to prepare for this awesome moment of um, of really from the beginning of Elul through the end of Simchat Torah is how the book is framed. So... Um, So he writes in the book, um, I have thought these things a thousand times before, and these things meaning things about himself that he might not be so proud of. I have thought these things a thousand times before. Still, to get them out makes a tremendous difference. I know them, but as long as they are unspoken, I can ignore them. Now that I have said them out loud to another human being, they are out there in the world. It would be so much harder to ignore them anymore, harder to deny them, harder to act in a way that failed to take them into account. And um, what I see here and what Rabbi Lou is saying is part of the reason that I started this class by telling you all that I'm an extremely judgmental person, um, because there are certain realities about ourselves that we know, but that we might not want to admit. And we don't want to admit them because we're ashamed of those realities, right? We know that they don't represent the best parts of ourselves. And um, why would we want to call attention to the parts of us that say, oh, here are the parts of me that are the worst, 
right? We want people to see ourselves for the, we want people to see us for the best versions of ourselves. So it's very strange, right? I wouldn't be surprised if some of you found it strange that when I started today, the first thing I told you about myself was I'm a professor at JTS and I'm very judgmental, right? That's not the sort of thing you usually expect when you meet someone for the first time. But part of the power in doing that is by stating this out loud, I no longer have the right to, um, or the, the ability to pretend that this part of me doesn't exist. And part of stating it out loud is saying, look, I want to be better than I am now, right? I can't deny them. And therefore, my obligation to take them into account is perhaps even greater than it was before because all of a sudden, everyone else knows this about me too, right? So if people met me and said, oh, Rachel, she seems a little judgmental, but okay, they might take that part of me into account. But as soon as I, excuse me, as soon as I tell you all about that part of me, part of what happens in that moment is you're going to be aware of it. I'm going to be aware of the way that you are aware of it. And therefore, consequently, um, I hopefully will work to mitigate that part of myself. And well, that my desire to mitigate it might come from a place of ego, meaning I want you to see me as better than I naturally am. Hopefully, eventually it becomes instinctive or intuitive such that we're able to say, um, look, there was this part of me, I acknowledged it, I'm not proud of it, it's not easy for me to dispose of it, but look at the work that I've done on myself such that now I've reached this moment where um, by acknowledging it, that's actually the first step in me moving past it. So with this, with this in mind, I'm going to go back to the source sheet now, and we're going to pick up in the book of Jonah, um, which I see in the comments some of you have had the, op um, the opportunity to, to study, which is great. Um, and so I'm going to work mostly out of the English. People should feel free to, to travel along in the language of their choice, but just in the name of accessibility. Um, we're picking up at the beginning of chapter four, which is the final chapter of the book of Jonah. And this is after Jonah finds out that um, the people of Nineveh have repented and um, now God is going to save them. And instead of having the reaction you would expect, which is, wow, all those other prophets who came before, it never worked and things were terrible. Look at this amazing thing that I got to help accomplish, right? Think of all these lives that I've, that I've um, helped to save. Instead, Jonah thinks in this way. So it says in the text, um, this, meaning finding out that Jonah was saved, displeased Jonah greatly, and he was grieved. Um, and this is the JPS translation. So he prayed to the Lord saying, Oh Lord, isn't this just what I said when I was still in my old country? This is why I fled beforehand to Tarshish. For I know that you are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in kindness, renouncing punishment. Please, Lord, take my life, for I would rather die than live. And the Lord replied, Are you that deeply grieved? And then the story goes on from there. God basically teaches Jonah a lesson involving a, a gourd that gives him shade and then shrivels up and dies. Again, I recommend reading the book of Jonah. It's not very long, and it's an amazing book. Um, but the part that I want to focus on here is that Jonah says, lists all of God's positive attributes, right? Um, and in fact, I'm going to read from the Hebrew because some of you might be familiar. This echoes the Yud Gimel Midot, the 13 attributes of God that we traditionally recite during the Torah service on festivals, right? Ki el rachum v'chanun erech hapayim v'rav chesed. 
right? This, it's an exact echo of what we have in the book of Exodus. But here, Jonah's not saying it as, well, look how great God is. Instead, he says, God, I know that you are abounding in kindness, renounce punishment, that you are gracious, that you are compassionate. And therefore, that's why I didn't want to tell these people to repent, right? That's why I ran away and said, please, God, do not make me get involved with these people. Not because I think God's going to kill them, but because I think God is not going to kill them. And when I said Jonah is not the best in my estimation, right, I think you can probably see here part of the reason that I said this, because the idea that God's compassion would be seen as a sign of, of weakness on Jonah's part, Jonah is so unable to think about what it means that these people have been saved, because all he can think about is that he looks foolish, right? His concern is that he went to Nineveh and told the people, repent or God will kill you. And now God is not going to kill him, kill them rather. And Jonah thinks, well, then I'd rather be dead because everyone's going to be laughing at me. Which is such a crazy lesson to be taking from this experience. Because you would think the, experience, the, the lesson he would take is, wow, repentance really works, right? Which I think is probably why the book of Jonah is read on Yom Kippur, is we can say, wow, repentance really works, right? Look, God actually forgives sins. If people are serious enough in their process of repenting, then this is what happens. God will forgive you. You will get to go on and live this life. But all Jonah can think about is just how he will look. And so what he does then is he inverts and he takes what otherwise we would have assumed were God's most positive attributes and turns them into negatives. So I'm going to pause here for a moment, um, and I'm going to ask Rabbi Schatz if you want to just, if anyone raises their hand, if um, people can use the raise hand function or physically raise their hand. Um, mm -hmm. If anyone has comments, um, I know there are a bunch in this chat box, um, um, but I encourage people, if they have any thoughts thus far, to speak up. We'll bring in a couple other voices, and then we'll continue. If anyone has any questions... You can either raise your physical hand if I can see you, or you can raise your virtual hand. Um, Comments are also welcome, by the way. They don't have to be questions. While we're waiting for someone to verbally say something, I know that Paula Perlman asked, what does it mean to be judgmental? Does it mean not giving people the benefit of the doubt or assuming the worst about people? So I, it's a really good question. To me, it means that I am not always inclined I would like to say I don't always see the worst in people, although maybe, I think I don't always do that, but I don't always assume best intentions on the part of people, right? I think in this time of global pandemic, one of the, um, one of the mantras has been, assume everybody is doing the best that they can, right? These are imperfect circumstances, so just assume everyone is doing the best that they can, and Give, look at them in that way, right? In Hebrew, we have the phrase of Don right? You should look at people and give them such that you give them benefit of the doubt. It is not always my instinct to give people benefit of the doubt, um, I think is how I would say it. And I would like it to be, right? This is not something I say just to self-flagellate. And um, it's funny because I once spoke about this in my shul and um, like similarly confess my judgmentalness. This apparently is just something I do all the time now. And it was interesting because my friends who are in the community, nobody tried to say to me, oh no, Rachel, you're not judgmental. Everyone was like, yeah, that seems about right. And a couple other people came up to me and said, I'm really judgmental too, as if it was like this great, this great club for us to be part of. Um, but I don't, yeah, I don't always assume that people are acting 
um, sort of in the best way that they can, mm -hmm. I think is how I would say it. Um, so I see someone else ask the connection between judgment and forgiveness. Um, it's a really, really great question um, because I think that you can have judgment and forgiveness, right? Meaning I don't think it's that you have forgiveness on one hand or judgment or even justice, you might say, on the other, that sometimes those things feel like they're in conflict with each other. And this, I think, is something we're dealing with as a society on many different levels at this moment. Um, but that you can say, I, I, I judge someone for what they have done. Um, and whether I think they were doing the best that they could or I don't think that, in either case, I can still say, but I forgive them because we all make mistakes and we're all not our best at every moment of the day. Um, and we're doing the best that we can. But I think Audrey's question is better than, better than my answer. Um, so, um, right, and this idea that you, you, you struggle with forgiveness, right, even if you can overcome with judgmentalness. I also, I, I will tell you that when I was in eighth grade, there was, a, there was an incident and a bat mitzvah that you don't all need to know about. But I can tell you that there was someone in, uh, in my friend group who I refused to speak to for six months, which when you're like a 14-year-old girl in a school of 100 people in your grade is like not an easy feat. But that sense of like, I felt I had been wronged. And um, she clearly felt she had been wronged, right? But my reaction to that was just to say, well, then I'll never engage with you again. And then she actually left the school at the end of the year, not because of that. But I'm not sure we ever spoke to each other again. Um, so, so just, I, I think this is an interesting, it's an interesting question, right? Um, and so um, what I'm going to turn to now is I'm going to go back to the source sheet. For now, I'm going to skip source number three. Rashi there just um, plays out a little bit, makes explicit um, some of the things I was just talking about in terms of assumptions we can make about Jonah. Um, and instead, I want to show you this amazing text that, that I found. Um, so as I said, I'm a Talmudist. So when I find things um, in line with what I'm thinking about in the Talmud, I always get very excited. Um, and so this is a piece from the, uh, from the Talmud, Bavli, the Babylonian Talmud in Masechet Rosh Hashanah, Tractate Rosh Hashanah, which is about Rosh Hashanah, not surprisingly. Um, and chapter one is about the new years of the world, that there's actually more than one new year. We tend to think only about Rosh Hashanah as the new year. Um, the rabbis actually assume that there are four new years for different things over the course of the world. And the part of the idea that gets linked up in that, which is what we're going to be looking at here, is the idea that everything, not just every person, but everything in the world, every living thing in the world, goes through some form of judgment um, in the course of their new year, right? That part of what the new year is about is this experience of being judged by God um, and not judged in terms of judgmental, judged in terms of justice, although we can talk about whether we think God is judgmental sometime, another, another time, It'd be an interesting class for next year. Um, and so here... Um, the Gemara brings two statements by Rabbi Yitzchak. So, um, so what Rabbi Yitzchak says is there are three matters that evoke, the Hebrew is mazkirin, so basically bring to mind a person's sins. So the idea being that we all have transgressions in the world, but there are three things that uh, when they happen, it reminds God of the, the th ways in which we've transgressed in the world. And here's what they are. Um, sitting next to an inclined wall, um, I'll talk about that in a minute, expecting prayers to be answered, and this is where I got into trouble, passing judgment against one's fellow. So 
Um, the first one, sitting next to an inclined wall, this comes up elsewhere in the Gemara as well, you're not supposed to go near walls or structures that seem to be structurally unsound, because the idea is if you have transgressions, then the odds that that structure or wall will collapse on you is seen as very high. Um, so there are stories, for example, in Masachat Tanit, which talk about um, if a building was about to collapse, they would send in someone super righteous until they could get everything out that they wanted or that they needed, and then they would let the righteous person come out, and then the building would collapse. So the idea basically being don't tempt fate, right? So I guess the modern equivalent of this modern superstition would be like, don't walk under a ladder, right? Same sort of idea. So that's what that one is about, a physical reminder of the precariousness of our lives. Um, the second one is um, expecting your prayers to be answered, right? Assuming that you will automatically get everything you're praying for. The idea being that God will then investigate, do you deserve to have your prayers answered? This is obviously a very particular theology um, and might decide that not only do you not deserve to have your prayers answered, but actually you have a lot of sins and God wants to deal with that in some way. And the third one is um, passing judgment against others. Um, and they don't mean here judgment in the context of a court. What they mean here is if I'm judging others, then God will judge me. Right? If I'm looking at others and assuming that I know things about their circumstances, then God will come to judge me. And they bring a, um, a proof text for this um, from Rav Hanan, Rabbi Hanan. And um, it's an interesting proof text. And he says, everyone who passes judgment against one, one's fellow, he will be punished first. So meaning if I look at someone and judge them and think that they're deserving of punishment, perhaps they'll get punished one day, perhaps they won't be. But in any case, the punishment will come first to the judger before it goes to the judgee. And they proof that they bring for this is very interesting. Um, from Genesis 16, Sarai, right, this is Sarah and Abraham before they become Sarah and Abraham. Sarai and Avram are their, their original names. They get changed. Sarai said to Avram, let my anger be upon you. Um, this is um, when Sarai is angry that she doesn't have children. Um, and then it is written later on in chapter 23, and Avraham went to eulogize Sarah and cry over her, meaning that Sarah predeceases Avraham. And the idea is that Sarai is passing judgment against Avram. She's looking at him and saying, my suffering, this is your fault. And because she blames him, God then says, okay, well, if you're blaming him for this particular transgression, what transgressions do you have? And therefore, Sarah dies before Abraham. Um, right? I think we can all see why this theology is challenging or problematic, depending on your perspective. But it's an interesting model because the suggestion here is that maybe Sarah wouldn't have predeceased Abraham, or maybe she wouldn't have died when she did. Because in fact, Abraham lives for like another 70-ish years, give or take, after Sarah dies. Um, that she sort of brought her death upon herself because in judging Avraham, she was asking God to judge her. So the question then becomes, what's the remedy for this, right? So I have judged people because that is A, human nature in general, B, my nature in particular. Once I have judged people, what do I do? And so Rabbi Yitzchak thankfully not only tells me what can get me indicted, but also what can get me forgiven. Very helpful. Thank you, Rabbi Yitzchak. Sarbi Yitzchak says, a person's decree can be torn up in four ways. And again, part of this might sound familiar because this piece by Rabbi Yitzchak gets um, 
referenced, not cited directly, but referenced in the Unitanetokef prayer, um, which is the traditional Ashkenaz prayer recited during Musaf on both Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, that imagines the process of judgment that all living things go through before God. And at the end of that, we say, Teshuva, Tefila, Utsadaka, Ma'avirin, Edroa, Hakzera, that repentance, prayer, and the giving of charity can, um, can lessen the severity of the decree. So Rabbi Yitzhak says, um, a person's decree can be, um, can be torn up in four ways. And this is what those four ways are. Number one, crying out in prayer. Um, oh, sorry, tzedakah is first. Number one, tzedakah, giving a charity. Um, tzaka, crying out in prayer. Um, changing one's name and changing one's actions. So, um, right, tzedakah and crying out in prayer, as I said, those are fairly familiar to us from our liturgy. Changing one's name, this is something that I've seen people do, for example, if um, if someone falls ill, if they're dangerously ill, sometimes the practice is to change their name because the assumption is that the angel of death is looking for them and that you can confuse the angel of death um, out of wanting to kill this person by changing their name. Um, and then changing one's actions. And this, I think, is interesting because in certain ways, right, that's basically – Right, shinui masa, changing one's actions, that's basically what teshuva is, right? That's what repentance is. Um, Maimonides says that repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry, and I'm not going to do it again, but it's being faced with the same situation again and making a different choice. So that's really what I think shinui masa is, what changing one's actions are. So then the, the Gemara goes on and gives a proof text for each of these four ideas. So... Um, for tzedakah, it is written, tzedakah tatzil mimavet, that charity saves from death. This is from the book of Proverbs. Um, crying out in prayer, as it is written um, from the book of Psalms. Then they um, cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distresses. Um, changing one's names, as it is written. So this is actually very interesting in light of what we saw before. Sarai, your wife, do not call her name Sarai, but rather Sarah is her name. And it is written, I will bless her, and I will also give you a son from her, right? This is in the, um, the covenant that God makes with Abraham in chapter 17 of Genesis, that Sarah, as we know, has been wanting to have a child, right? Abraham also has, but um, Sarah has been wanting to have a child, and somehow changing her name from Sarai to Sarah is enough um, to also give her this blessing of having the son of Yitzchak. And then... Changing one's actions, we're going to cite from the book of Jonah here. Um, as it is written, and God saw their deeds, meaning the deeds of the people of Nineveh. And it is written, um, and God repented of the evil that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So when it said God says, saw their deeds, what it means is God saw that the people were making an, an effort to change their behaviors. And in the course of changing their behaviors, um, God decided that just as their behaviors changed, so too God's behavior towards them would change, um, and God declined to actually um, destroy the people of Nineveh. So there's a lot going on here with Rabbi Yitzhak, um, and we, we will do our best to give him some justice. We're not going to be able to give him the, the full justice he deserves, but I think part of what is happening here is Rabbi Yitzhak is basically saying, in the moments where you are in sort of ways, playing God, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute, in the moments where you are playing God, those are the moments 
where God looks at your actions most carefully, right? So playing God by saying this very unsteady wall that I see is unsteady, even so I assume it will not hurt me, right? Um, or saying, obviously my prayers will be answered and I can just have that expectation that my prayers will be answered. Or passing judgment against others, meaning I'm looking at what others are doing and assuming that I am superior to them such that it is appropriate for me to look at what they're doing and judge them for it, right? Because if that wasn't appropriate, if I didn't see myself as somehow superior, then maybe my instinct would be, I'm just going to worry about myself. I'm not going to focus on this other person um, because how do I know, right, who's better or who's worse? And I think that the, I think there's a lot of truth in this because I think there is an element of elitism involved in judgmentalness, right? Like I think that in many ways, when I look at other people and I'm not inclined to give them benefit of the doubt, which by the way, sometimes people don't deserve. Like I don't mean to make it sound like either I'm a terrible monster or I'm a martyr. It's neither. It's more complicated than that. Some people don't deserve benefit of the doubt, right? Like someone wrote in the chat about like, what if we're judging people who refuse to wear masks when they're inside with other people? And like, yeah, I, I mean, the question of whether the judgment is, is um, productive is another question. But to me, that feels totally reasonable. But if I judge someone for doing a behavior that maybe I would have done myself if someone else wasn't there watching as well, right, which is sometimes what happens, um, part of what that does is suggest that I think that I am in a position to judge them, right? That I think it's appropriate for me to judge them in that way. And that's the moment where according to Rabbi Yitzchak, God looks at me and says, well, if you think you can judge others, which is meant to be the place of God, then I'm going to judge you, right? I'm going to look at you and I'm going to see what you're doing. And when we look at the second Rabbi Yitzchak statement, this idea that part of the way that we, um, that we, that we um, um, tear up, sorry, part of the way that we tear up the decrees against us is through changing our actions. That makes sense, right? Because I, I mean, Shinui Hashem, changing one's name is a different category, I think. But in addition to changing one's name, there's also this element of, um, of how am I showing that I want to be better, right? So one way is I can give of myself. I can give tzedakah, which I think usually we think of as being money. That's probably what they mean, but it can also mean time, I think. Um, I can cry out in prayer, and I don't think this necessarily means read the words of the Siddur or read the words of the Masr, but instead use prayer as an effort to self-reflect, right? I think um, there are other methods to, to use this as well, but how can we summon this experience of self-reflection? And then Shinui Masa, yeah, the way that I show that I um, don't deserve the punishment that might have been decreed for me is partly by my saying, look, I'm going to try to do better next time, right? I understand that I'm not at my best. It doesn't mean I have to be perfect. That's not what we're saying here. But what we're saying here is I'm going to try to do better, right? And if I try to do better, then it seems worth me being given another chance, um, as long as I mean it. And I think that that's the point of Rabbi Yitzchak's sec um, second statement is that you know, tzedakah and prayer and changing our actions, we have to actually mean those efforts. We can't just go through the motions. And it's, it's an interesting question because I'll, you know, this has come up in terms of opioids, right? So when we think about like these people who made the Sacklers in particular, not to, to pick on them, but they're a prominent example, 
who have made a tremendous amount of money off of these drugs. Um, and then at the same time, um, then they give away, right, they're very generous financially. But the question is, if you're exploiting, if you are oppressing people based on, um, if you're, basically if you cause this amount of suffering is the fact that then you give away a large chunk of the money, but not so much that you're not still left with tons of money, is that really doing anything, right? Um, and, you know, I'm not... <laughs> going to try not to judge them because like that's between you know them and their maker but it's this interesting idea of what does it mean for us to change so I see we have a bunch of things in the um in the chat so I want to just look through them um right so someone says it sounds like tashlich and I think that's actually the idea right if we imagine tashlich as a form of us disposing of our sins in some sort of capacity um the idea is that we cast them away not so that we can then bring them back and do it again but by going through this ritual, it's our way of saying, these are the things about myself that I hope to change in the coming year. Um, and I think the piece that Paula mentioned here about compassion is really important because um, compassion towards others, I think, can breed compassion towards ourselves. I think both of those things are important. Like, um, as much as I keep talking about my judgmentalness, I don't think it's actually helpful for me to flagellate myself for being judgmental all the time. What's more helpful is for me to say, when I'm in this moment, can I recognize that I'm behaving in this way and then consciously try to change it to something different and that cultivating compassion for others and self-compassion, those two things can actually lead into each other in a way that I think is really helpful. Um, I'm going to pause here again. Any other comments that people either want to put in the chat or say out loud? I just have a quick, I'll, I'll jump in. Um, I have a quick question about the change. I know you said it's in a different category and, um, you don't have to go into it if you don't want to. But I, I do wonder if in this particular case, the changing of one's name, does that, does that kind of um, take away the person's responsibility to actually have to change their actions? Because if they now go by Joe, but they went by David beforehand, like they can get away with having done something because now they have this whole new identity. I totally understand it when it comes to health and, and the kind of the, the scare around continuing the same identity if the Malachamavet might be, might be following you. But in this particular case, it seems to kind of be a really easy out because if we're looking to change ourselves, then just changing our name is just saying, ah, well, I'll just do it again as a different character and then it'll be as if I didn't do it. Yes, I think it's a great point. And um, so first of all, I've never known of anyone to change their name except in a case of illness. Yeah, so yeah. it's possible people just every year on Rosh Hashanah take a new name. And <laughs> God, but I've never heard of that. Um, the other thing to note is that often when people change their name, they don't actually change their name. What they do is add an additional name. Mm -hmm. right? So I am Hebrew. I'm like, I'm, my, na my Hebrew name is Rachel Leah. So if God forbid I needed to change my name for a reason, I could become like, Rachalaya Shoshana or whatever else, right? It's the adding of a third name. So the idea is that that's what confused the Malachamavet. But yeah, I see that one as the one that doesn't really fit among the other four. And I think that's probably part of the reason that that's the one that doesn't make it into the Machsar. Mm. Right? So Rabbi Yitzchak gives us four. And what we have in the Machsar is Teshuvah, Tefillah, and Tzedakah. And Teshuvah, right, repentance, that to me feels like changing our actions. Yeah. And then Tefillah, prayer, right, that's the crying out. And then Tzedakah is Tzedakah. So I think that there's probably a reason that that's the one that um, that doesn't make the cut. I see Renee is raising her hand. She's on my yeah. screen. And then Audrey also has a question in the chat. Great. Okay. So Renee and then Audrey. 
I went, I'm thinking also, like, how, why is the name thing part of that? But, and as Rebecca was talking, it, it, it occurred to me that maybe what, rather than an actual physical name change, maybe they're thinking more of like an alter ego. Yeah, I think that's definitely that, possible. That, that another name is not really actually physically changing or adding to someone's name, but just having this alter ego above them saying, okay, I've been a bad boy this year. I better, you know, do better. Yeah, and I do think, um, by the way, that people people do name changes actually not infrequently for different reasons. So, for example, um, my when I got married, my husband's um, my husband goes by Yair, but his legal name is Joseph on his birth certificate. And so I didn't change my name when I got married, but there was a whole conversation about did he want to legally change his name, right? And he decided not to for a host of reasons. Or someone will decide they want to go by a nickname, or they'll decide that they ha- went by a nickname and now they don't want to go to buy a nickname anymore, right? This idea that at different stages of our lives, there are different parts of our identity we want to put forward, um, I think is absolutely something that we we are familiar with. Um, and so, and it's not always about I want to run away from my actions, but sometimes it's about, well, you know, everyone called me, this is not true in my case, only my mother is allowed to call me Rachie because she gave birth to me so she can do that, but um, everyone else is not allowed to call me Rachie. Right? But imagine if I went by Rachie, one can imagine that when I turned 18 and went to college, I felt like that wasn't necessarily going to make people take me so seriously, and now I want to go by Rachel. Right? I know people who have made that sort of transition. Um, and that is about saying, I want to start a different stage of my life. Right? That is what that's about. And it's not about, oh, I'm on the lamb, I'm running from the law, I'm trying to get away from whatever God wants to do to me. But it's still this sense of, this, is, this represents a fresh start for me. Right? I think some people feel that way when they take a spouse's name when they get married in whatever direction. Um, so you said Audrey also had a hand Audrey up? and Susan have questions in, in the chat, and Michael has his hand raised. Okay, so um, let me, so Audrey says, are judgment and compassion necessarily exclusive? Which I think she also asked, oh no, she talked about judgment and forgiveness before. Um, I don't think judgment and compassion are mutually exclusive. In fact, those are the two attributes we're told that God has. God has, Midat Hadin has the, attribute of, of judgment and midat harachamim, the, um, the attribute of compassion. The rabbis imagine that God has two chairs and sort of goes back and forth between the compassion chair and the judgment chair. But I think the idea is that actually for us to exist in a healthy society, part of what we have to do is figure out a way to balance those two things against each other, right? That we should never be all judgment. We also shouldn't be all compassion. That actually it's about us figuring out when do we have those two things in concert with each other, and when do we want to wait one way versus the other? Um, doesn't it, But does having compassion reduce the chance of being judgmental? Yes, I think it does, and that's why I think compassion is important. Um, and that's what I find so interesting about Jonah, because Jonah has no compassion for anyone other than himself, mm-hmm. and yet somehow he's the one who's the most successful, right? Like Jeremiah and Isaiah and um, like Yechezkel, right? There's so many other prophets who are totally unsuccessful, and somehow Jonah, who's the one who has no compassion for these people he's trying to help, seems to feel no connection to them, no responsibility for trying to save them. Um, for whatever reason, right, he is the one, his judgmentalness in certain ways brings out God's compassionate side, which I don't think is the lesson we're meant to take from it. But it's interesting to see, um, right, what if Jonah had approached the people with compassion or afterwards had felt compassion for them? Isn't it wonderful that this entire city isn't going to be wiped out? how would the story feel different in that particular case? 
Um, okay, so I think we had one more comment with a hand raised, and then we're going to go back to the next. Michael. I, I, I'm actually having problems with the um, evidence that's being brought back here. Like, so, for example, with, with the name change, right? I, I don't, if I recall correctly, Sarai didn't really change her name. God changed it for her or told her to change it, right? Yes. And, and then, and then on, the, on, the, on the last evidence piece, the, the people of Nineveh, right, um, were also kind of told, hey, shape up or you're going to, something bad will happen, right? So for, for, for people to, you know, come to a new place for themselves, what, it seems like it's under threat or someone else forced it upon them with these examples rather than people having this self-realization that you've been talking about, right, and coming to that conclusion themselves, right? So I'm just curious as to why these, there, there probably could have been better evidence brought. To yes, support. I think I think you're right. I think it's not the best proof texts that I've ever seen, um, especially the point you make about Sarah, I think is a very, very good one. Also, God has been promising to give Sarah a child for a while now. This isn't the first time it happened. Um, you know, in terms of Jonah, I think it's a little bit more complicated with the people of Nineveh, because it's true that the people of Nineveh get threatened, and that's why they change their behavior, except that we have many, many other instances in the Bible where people get threatened and they don't change their behavior. So there is something different about the book of Jonah, right? For whatever reason, the fact that he's successful where others hadn't been, there's something different about him. Um, and it's an interesting question of, like, do I... Um, do I, if I change my behavior for the wrong reasons, but I have still changed my behavior, does it matter that I did it for the wrong reasons? Um, and one would hope that we have this, um, there's a concept in, um, in, in Jewish law of devar shalo lishma, balishma, right? Something that you originally don't do for its own sake, or I might say instead as a more loose translation for the right reasons ultimately will come, you'll come to do it for its own sake, or you'll come to do it for the right reasons. And I actually think that that's true. I think that a lot of times when we set habits for ourselves, um, right, so far, like so-called good habits, whatever that might mean to each of us, that often when we set those habits, we might not necessarily set them for the right reasons, right? Um, like my sister will tell you that she started exercising more because it was an excuse to get away from her children. Um, and so, um, you know, but now she like loves going for a run every morning, but it started out as, well, this is an excuse, um, particularly during the pandemic to get away from my children to say, I'm going for a run. Um, but now she goes for a run because it clears her head and it makes her feel really good. And she gets endorphins and all those other pieces. And so, um, right. Assuming the people of Nineveh stuck to their improved ways, which we don't know if that happens because the story ends where it ends. Um, but assuming the people of Nineveh stuck to their reformed ways, does it really matter that the reason why they started doing that was because God threatened them via Jonah of, if not, I'm going to destroy you? It matters a little bit, right? Um, but I think the ultimate effect is the same. And so I don't actually think it matters a lot. Um, but no, but I think, I think it's a good point. And, you know, whenever they bring proof text, you always wonder um, how effective do they think these proof texts are. And in my experience, some proof texts are very effective and other ones are less effective. Um, so I think that's part of what we're seeing here. So I'm sure there are other comments and I would love to hear them, but I do want us to get through 
um, other sources. I thought this source sheet might be a little ambitious, and it seems I was correct, but that's okay. So what I brought here in source number five, which I'm not going to read out loud, but I wanted to give context for when we get to source number six in a minute, is um, a section of the Al-Khat prayers. So these are the prayers said um, over the course of Yom Kippur. We say them during every service. Um, it's part of the vidui, part of the confessional part of the service. And traditionally, what you do is every time that you say, for the sin, or for the sin we have committed before you, we um, pound our chests, basically on our hearts. And um, it's done alphabetically. Each letter in the alphabet has two alphets associated with them. So, um, and they're very interesting because it's really a whole wide range. So this is only the first section. This, I think, is like aleph through... Um, Aleph through Yod here. So this is the first 10 letters of the alphabet. There are two more sections after this one. Um, but what we see, right, is it's sins we did on purpose, sins we did by accident, sins, sins we did through speech, sins we did through action, right? Um, coercion, using God's name in vain, right? All of these different things. And as you go through, it's something I find myself doing every year, and this isn't even necessarily conscious, but it happens every year, is I find myself as I go through the list sort of thinking how many of these have I myself done? And a lot is made of the fact that these confessional sections are all written in the first person plural. So they all say we, and the idea is that we don't want to force any person in the community to actually list, well, I did this one, I didn't do this one, because it's embarrassing. And so instead, we collectively take responsibility for these transgressions. So I grew up um, on the Upper West Side, I'm not straight far, um, at a synagogue some of you might be familiar with called Congregation B'nai Jeshurun, um, which is a unaffiliated synagogue, sort of loosely affiliated with the conservative movement, but not officially. And they, in their high holiday liturgy every year, include basically modern alternative alchets. So in addition to saying the set piece of liturgy, which I included here, they have other ones that they have written that they include. And even though that's no longer the synagogue I pray at regularly, there's one I think of every year, which I have included on the source sheet, source number six, um, right? For the sins we have committed before you by condemning traits in others that we've forgiven ourselves. And I find this to be extremely resonant um, because I think that part of where my judgmentalness comes from is I feel uncomfortable when I see other people doing things that I know that I have done or that my instinct would be to do as well, right? Um, that often the places where we judge others most are places where what they're doing feels very close to us. We don't want to admit the ways in which it feels close to us, and so instead we turn to condemning others. And this, I think, is really, really human, and it's really difficult to break out of. And... Um, it's also one of the most important things that we can do because I think it's very difficult to get to a place of compassion for others until we learn to stop condemning traits in others that we've forgiven ourselves, right? There's the, the mirror that we put up when we look at other people. I think we're, we're most aware of our own reflections when we see others doing things that we also do that we're not proud of. And so... Um, we have here, um, I'm going to actually go to source eight and then go back to source seven. What we have here is this um, statement, which is attributed to Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, who is the founder of the modern Musser movement. Musser is really a movement of ethics. Um, the idea that it's not enough to learn law and restrictions and all of these requirements, but that we have to 
um, we have to um, cultivate kindness and morality in ourselves. I will tell you though that it's possible that this source is apocryphal because I spent a very long time looking for the actual source and everyone just says, Yisrael Salanter said this, but no one can give me the book where he said it. So it's possible he didn't actually say it and someone else said it, but um, it's worth repeating anyway. So what he says is, right, most men, and we can say people, worry about their own bellies and other people's souls. Meaning I think about my own sustenance and then I look at other people and I say, well, what are those people doing that's good and what are those people doing that's bad? But actually what we all ought to be worried about are our own souls and other people's bellies. Meaning I should be concerned that other people have what they need and I should be worried about my own spiritual development and my own actions and the ways in which they reflect on me and make me productive or not productive, helpful or not helpful in terms of me entering the world. And our instinct is to think about my own material needs and think about other people's actions and all the reasons that their actions are bad, right? It's a very human instinct. And part of what we have to do is train ourselves to say, I don't know other people's circumstances, but it's my job to look at people and make sure that they have the sustenance that they need and, um, and then worry about my own actions and not worry so much about other people's actions. Because often the fact of the matter is other people's actions don't actually affect me that much, right? Sometimes they do, and then we can talk about it. But often when I'm looking at people and judging them, it actually has nothing to do with me. And that's what makes it so easy for them, for me to judge them. And, you know, I'll say by way of a quick aside that um, we right now on the West Side are having like an issue around, I think, this exact issue, which is that because of COVID, they've converted some hotels into homeless shelters. And there's been tremendous resistance by many in the neighborhood. It seems to have made the New York Times today, which I'm extremely embarrassed about. Tremendous resistance among many in the neighborhood who basically say, of course, these people shouldn't be in shelters when it's dangerous, but they shouldn't be in our neighborhood either right? NIMBYism is often what it's called, not in my backyard. And right, there were all these rumors going around, there are sex offenders, it's not true, right? My children might see drug use. And instead of thinking about what does it mean that people are like have these mental illnesses, right? Have, have, they struggle with mental illness, they struggle with addiction. We're not giving them the resources that we need. We as a society are not providing housing that people can afford. And so that's how we end up with a situation where we have hundreds of people who have nowhere to go in, or thousands of people who have nowhere to go in the middle of a global pandemic. And I've actually seen comments where some people basically say this is lowering the property value of my condo, right? And, and on one hand, it's like horrific and I'm like embarrassed as a native West Sider. Um, I don't own a condo, just like by way of being honest. <laughs> rent because I'm a professor and my husband is a journalist, but, um, but you know, but I also, I, I understand where it's coming from because people basically say, I pay a lot to live here, right? That's my own belly. I pay a lot to live here and I'm entitled to certain things. And these people, those other people, those people are bad, right? And the most effective story that I've seen on this is someone from a, like a local um, neighborhood website went around and interviewed some of the people living in these shelters and they talked about what a difference it's making for their lives that they have like a safe place to go where they know they're not going to get sick where they know they're not going to get evicted where they're being given offered uh, they're being given food and also act services that they really really need and what was striking in reading the you should never read the comments but i read the comments and what was striking in reading the comments on that piece as opposed to some of the other pieces 
was that was the piece where people said, oh yes, those people have souls, right? They're not just people coming in and driving down my property values, right? Those people's bellies were empty, proverbial. I mean, they were, they were also hungry, but they had no place to go. And so what I want to close with is this Mishra from Soto, which is source number seven. Um, and there's this really, um, this teaching I find myself returning to um, every year as I think about Yamim Noraim in general and this issue in particular. Um, so this is Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair, and he, this is the very closing of the tractate of Sota. And he says, quickness leads to cleanliness, cleanliness leads to purity, purity to separation, separation leads to kedusha, to holiness, um, holiness leads to humility, humility leads to fear of sin, fear of sin leads to religious devotion, religious de uh, devotion leads to Ruach HaKodesh, so Ruach HaKodesh is literally um, translated as Holy Spirit, but that sounds super Christian, so that's why I left it as Ruach HaKodesh, but, um, but basically it brings you to God's spirit, and God's spirit leads to the resurrection of the dead, and the resurrection of the dead leads to the coming of Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet, which basically means the Messiah. Resurrection of the dead leads to the Messiah, um, and Eliyahu, who is remembered for good, amen. And that's how the tractate closes. And the reason why I love this, it's, it's, it's actually an extremely long Mishnah. This is just the last piece. But the reason why I love this Mishnah is because it shows us that holiness is not the end goal. And I think that part of what happens during this time of year of this heightened spiritual significance, and I'm actually interested to see how it's going to feel this year when we unfortunately can't be together. But part of what happens at this time of year is that there's so much focus on holiness, right? We wear our white clothing or our fanciest clothing, and we're in synagogue for all of these hours, and we hear the shofar, and we do the spiritual work on ourselves, and we hopefully feel elevated by that experience, right? We feel changed by that experience. That's the goal, at least. But the real question this Mishnah reminds us of is what comes after that, right? Because the end goal is not actually achieving that holiness. Part of the end goal, part of what the holiness should do is lead us to remember all of the ways in which we're not holy yet. And that's not so we can flagellate ourselves, but it's instead to remind us that the holiness is a step in the process towards becoming better versions of ourselves and when that happens, that's when the world can be redeemed. And whatever it means for you, right? You don't need to believe necessarily in like a person on a donkey being led in by Eliyahu Anabi and then Messiah is going to come in and save us all. But that there's process involved in all of this. And that part of what our job is, is to say, when I do this work on myself during this period of time, and whether what you're working on is judgmentalness, which I am, and so that's why I've been talking about this today, or something else, right? Because we all have traits in ourselves that we want to have, we want to do better with than we have done thus far. But as we think about those cell, by that work, we shouldn't say, well, if I don't achieve the perfection of eliminating that trait or totally achieving that trait, then that means that I failed, right? Because what this Mishnah reminds us of is actually all of this is a process. And so the question becomes then, how are we going to engage in this process in a way that feels... Um, fruitful and beneficial and can lead to our continual improvement and spiritual development, not just for ourselves, but also for the ways in which we um, go out and affect the world around us. So those are my thoughts. Um, I really appreciate all of you letting me come and learn with you. Um, for those of you in California, I hear it's really hot there, so I hope that gets better. <laughs>
it was really hot here and now it's better. So, um, and I wish you all a, a Shana Tava Metuka, a sweet year, um, a good year, hopefully a year better than the one that we just had. Um, and maybe one day we will get to learn together um, in person. So thank you so much. Thank you to Rabbi Shaf. Thank you to uh, Michelle who had to sign off. And it's been a pleasure. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.